What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wadham. I'm Rachel Wadham, and welcome to Worlds Awaiting, helping children and parents explore the world of literacy. Today, we'll be exploring the worlds of fatherhood, diversity, and democracy. First, we'll talk with BYU's head of university communications, Joe Hadfield, about his role as a father. Then author L.L. McKinney will share her story of becoming a writer. Our last guest will be Amy Miner, and we'll be talking about democratic behavior. Before we leave you, I'll step around the librarian's table to talk with librarians from around Utah about children, books, and life. Along with our interviews, we'll have story time with the poetry of Emily Dickinson, and we'll take a glimpse into Cosmo the Cougar's campus. But before all that, I'd like to take you into my world. Rachel's When we talk about important habits of mind that students need to develop, one of the most important is curiosity. Curiosity is the desire to know more about the world. This desire inevitably leads to questions since we don't know everything and we need to ask questions in order to learn. So for me, questions and curiosity go hand in hand. But the cool thing about questions is there is no one way to find answers. We can use the hypothesis structure of the scientific method, we can use math, or we can even use art or literature. As a librarian, there are two important elements to how I teach my students to ask and answer questions. First, I teach my students that especially in schooling contexts, we need to develop questions that are relevant to the discipline and audience we are working with. This means that some questions are best left to other contexts, but it does not mean that these questions are not valid. They may just not be right for this particular time or place. The second thing I teach my students is how to find answers. And just like in the asking, finding answers depends on the discipline. My discipline of literacy and literature has specific ways of knowing, including narrative analysis and other qualitative methods. We teach students how to ask the kinds of questions literature should answer and how to find the right information to answer them. Both of these skills are critical to my students to develop the kinds of habits of curiosity that will help them to succeed in college and beyond. So here at Rachel's World, we advocate for supporting our children's curiosity by encouraging their questions and by teaching them to use a wide range of places to find answers. Rachel's World We hear a lot of different perspectives here on this show. Educators, mothers, authors, illustrators, and experts. Anyone and everyone who cares about literacy and our children. Today, we'd like to give a perspective that gets forgotten sometimes. We're here in studio with Joe Hadfield. He's the director of online communications here at BYU, and more importantly, he's a dad. Welcome, Joe. Thank you. This is so fun to be here. Joe, you are a dad, and you come to us today with your dad perspective, which I think is really wonderful. So to start off today, tell us a little bit about as a dad and for your family, why do you think literacy is important? What is important about literacy for you and your family? 
That's a great question. Uh, my wife and I have talked about this a lot, and one of the things that we see with books is the the vocabulary that it gives them for different experiences and emotions, especially. I know in one of your previous episodes, you had a guest speak about this, the emotional um, nuances that you pick up when you know more words. And um, it's just incredible when you have a child who's able to articulate what they're feeling because uh, that's a that's hard for adults to do. <laughs> and And when you see a child who's able to to express it, even when they express it in the form of a complaint back to you as a mom and a dad, if they've done it well, you feel like celebrating, even though they're completely blasting you and criticizing you, right? Yeah. Yeah. And some of the other things that, that we love are just the, the doors that books open to them. If you think about um, all of the options that they have in life now, you know the the number of careers that exist these days is just proliferating. You know things that our parents never imagined could be a job because it's so true technologies and and so it's it's great to open doors to a lot of different experiences so they don't just see what our little life in our town is like. Um, they get to open up a world that's interesting to them. One of my kids. Uh, has known since he was a, a toddler that he wanted to be a pilot. And reading didn't – he didn't take to it naturally and quickly and easily. But once he kind of got into that mode where, okay, I can read about big stuff. <laughs> you know, the kid stuff did not <laughs> yeah, interest yeah. him. I can read about the big stuff. I like I like that description. <laughs> yeah. and, and he's just always been so um, wanting to be in the next stage of life. I You know, I want to grow up. He's not he, – He's wanted – imagine himself a few stages ahead all the time and, and when he realized books could get him there faster, at least in his mind, um, that's when it really clicked. So he reads World War II histories and, and aviation stories and, and uh, just never, never without something like that. I think you hit on something that I think is so important. And I think sometimes when we talk about literacy and reading, we don't always go in this direction. You're talking about these kind of social and emotional literacies, right? How we interact with the world around us and how we express our understanding of the world around us. So have you seen that happen with your kids as they've developed more complex literacies and developed their own literacy skills? Have you seen that, that they're better able to interact with the world in social and emotional ways? Oh, we definitely have. Have you know? There, anytime we encounter situations, particularly around family conflict, every family has some conflict, and um, books have been our lifesaver in a number of situations. Not just to say, "Hey, go read this book so that you'll stop fighting with your sibling," um, but we're able to maybe find a parallel in a book. This is like when we read this, or. Or just to distract them by fascinating with something we've read. Um, you know, I, there was an occasion where one of my kids wanted to take a long walk around town instead of be home, and uh, so walking alongside him, um, we we're able to steer the conversation into a story of a book I had been reading, and it was just interesting to watch as a diversion, it, able to calm us down, fascinate us, escape into this imagination land for a while. Um, and then settle down and we can talk about what's going on at home and how to move forward. Um, yeah, none of them have ever lacked for 
ways to express their feelings and even when it's in an angry way, uh, at least we can get it out there and, and move ahead and resolve conflict. So, so that's where I'd say the, the payoff is, is when we need to figure out how to settle a conflict. And that is a huge payoff, particularly for interacting with each other. When, when we think about your role as a dad, right, how is your role in your family with literacy, you think, different than the role that your wife plays? So how, how, how are your mother and father roles a little bit different? And why do you think it's important for you as a dad to model literacy and model literacy activities? You mentioned how much you read and all these types of things. So why is that important in that dad role for you? Yeah, that's a fascinating question because I think there's something to it. Very um, much. <laughs> yeah, dads play a huge role. And I don't think we articulate very strongly how important dads are in this role. So I, I'd like to hear from your perspective. Right. Yeah. Well, and I feel a little spoiled. I've seen a little bit of research where if you look at um, how influential a little bit of effort by dad with literacy has a huge payoff. Um, that's not fair. You know, all I have to do is read 10 minutes after work or something and there's – you know, the data show – that that has a huge difference for kids. I could be holding the book upside down to myself and it still makes a difference. You know, they've done experiments like that. So some of the things I do mainly just to always have something that I'm reading now and then even if I'm not reading it necessarily with them. Uh, if I've got my own book that I can read and they'll look at it and say, hey, dad, what's this about? You know, it's sort of one of that, what's dad doing right now? The piques their curiosity. So I'll often walk to work and carry a book with me and read it. Long time ago, um, some friends of mine in the neighborhood um, decided to start a book club for guys because there had been this neighborhood book club for some of the women. And I thought, come on, guys can do that too. And it's interesting because the next day the kids want to find out how was book club because they know that um, we're not just there to talk about the books. We're going to go have a campfire somewhere, grab dessert or just – some shenanigans, you know, acting like boys a little bit, even though we're adult men. It's interesting to see how much the kids tune into that, even though they don't necessarily care about any of my other hobbies. Yeah. <laughs> so they, that's it. And I think the last thing I'd say is uh, not complaining about library fines is one of my contributions. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> <laughs> because we've, we've checked and we have paid $500 in the last decade and I asked the city library if that was enough to get our name on a brick in the building, <laughs> and they said no. So <laughs> you got to do more. <laughs> I think it needed to be not a not a fine. It had to be a voluntary contribution. <laughs> there you go. So. There you go. Well, th I I really do think that those small contributions that dad add to the family, especially when the literacy activities is is so important. And I think the more that dads play that role. But I think uniquely for you, you are also a public communication specialist. You're mm -hmm. a journalist. And so for you, one of the things that I think would be interesting for me to know from you is how about that media literacy aspect? I mean, because you are very much in tune with the things that are happening in the media. How do you as a dad help your kids understand all of that type of reading and consuming too? Is there things that you do to help them understand what's going on in the media? and what's going on in the news and how to process that both cognitively to you know, help them understand our world and our democracy, but also emotionally, all of the things that are going on. Yeah, and it's a good question because sometimes uh, the way media uh, is delivered to us becomes a lot more 
hidden from the people around us. You know, the, the newspaper is not on your door, at least not on our doorstep. We're still reading news, um, but it can be hidden from kids. And so sometimes uh, make sure one of the presets on the radio or on the car radio is to a, a news station that we listen to occasionally, um, and they're you know they'll pop up questions about you know the election or questions about you know the wildfires that they've seen on the news radio or, or heard about but i think it also just the conversations that mom and dad have in the house about what's happening then that draws them in so so being in the know and and following news is important i think but but it's a really good question because we, without being intentional about this, kids can totally miss that mom and dad follow what happens in the world today. It is so easy to do because I think a lot of it too is, you know, like you said, it's not like you're sitting and reading a newspaper anymore. It's on your phone or it's in passing or it's when they're not in the room and that type of thing. And and missing that, I think, can be significant. They don't they don't understand that the, our parents are consuming this and and what they think about it and their own opinions and perspectives along those lines. Yeah, and and so doing things, even little things like uh, not listening to that to that news podcast on your headphones, but turning it onto the speaker in the house um, while you're cleaning up a certain room, you know, that that makes a difference. I have memories. I think the reason I wanted to read in the first place was because I'd see my parents, my dad specifically, read the newspaper. And, you know, like this sounds cliche, but I'd crawl underneath the newspaper and up into his lap and and just try to figure out what he was doing. And so at age four, I was demanding that that I learn how to read. And so mom taught me to read before I got to school. Uh, but it was because I saw dad reading and it drove me nuts that he could figure out <laughs> what was on that page, but I couldn't yet. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that example is pretty powerful. That kind of just engagement as a family, I think, is so important that we we really do think about this, the role that mothers play, the roles that fathers play, and then how can we really advocate and make this be a really important piece of literacy as our family. So as we wrap up our conversation today, what what is one last tip or one idea that you might give to fathers out there about how to make literacy a little more essential and central to their own families? I'd say to find one way to make it um, small and consistent each day. You know, if it's if it's bedtime, give some time so that you're reading a chapter a night. Um, if it's um, you know after dinner or but find one spot where you can put in ten minutes a day because you know all all parents are busy these days, and you don't you don't need to hand kids hours of reading time that's very time intensive on you. But if you can give them a little bit of a nudge each day and exposure, um, they'll take off at some point and read on their own. And so I would just say to, to find a little family ritual time where you get to read to them when they're young and, and then just be a reader yourself. Marvelous tips. Thank you so much, Joe, for bringing your dad perspective to the show today. Thank you so much. This is fun. 
Joe is the director of online communications here at BYU. Next, it's story time with Emily Dickinson. We had Leanna Tan, a producer here at BYU Radio, read a few of her well-known poems. Emily didn't generally title her poems, but the first lines of the ones we'll share with you today are Faith is a Fine Invention, I'm Nobody, Who Are You?, and Nature is What We See. Faith is a fine invention, one gentleman can see, but microscopes are prudent in an emergency. I'm nobody. Who are you? Are you nobody too? Then there's a pair of us. Don't tell. They'd advertise, you know. How dreary to be... Somebody. How public, like a frog, to tell one's name the live-long June to an admiring bog? Nature is what we see. The hill, the afternoon, squirrel, eclipse, the bumblebee. Nay, nature is heaven. Nature is what we hear. The bobolink, the sea, thunder, the cricket. Nay, nature is harmony. Nature is what we know, yet have no art to say. So impotent our wisdom is to her simplicity. Most authors have many stories that never hit the shelves, but with every word written, lessons are learned. Today, we're on the phone with author L.L. McKinney, so she can share her story of becoming an author. Welcome! Thank you so much for having me. I love this. Well, I love this too. I love talking to authors and helping our audience understand what a wonderful journey this is and also the differences in this journey. So to start out a little bit, tell us, how did this journey for you start? Where did you start being a writer? So I like to start by saying that I've always loved stories. I've loved reading them and I've loved telling them from a really early age. Um, I would draw pictures and string them together and that would be like a book, um, you know, like a great best-selling masterpiece if you asked my mother and grandmother. Um, but I started writing small stories and short stories. I got to say elementary school and I wrote all the time from then. And honestly, I was, it's my ninth grade year and an English teacher, my ninth grade English teacher told my parents that writing is a distraction and she should stop. No teacher out there should ever say that. (laughs) Particularly like your English teacher. I know. (laughs) So it was, it was very, um, it was kind of crushing for me and my parents didn't really buy into it. They were like, you know, she seems like she's trying to start trouble for no reason. So maybe just tone it down around her in particular, you know, um, just to save yourself the headache. 
So I actually stopped writing. I mean, because this was an authority figure in my life who I thought like knew their stuff. It's my English teacher. If anybody knows about books and writing and how it works, it would be that person. Uh, So I stopped writing and I didn't write again until my college years. And A Blade So Black is my first published book, but it's the sixth book overall that I've written. And I could not have written it without having written those other books because I learned with each of those books. I grew and developed my craft further with each of those books. So there are people who ask, if you could do it all again, would you start with this one? And if I did start with it, it wouldn't be the same. It wouldn't be anywhere close to the same. And so I started writing seriously the first of those six. Well, technically the first of those six books was when I was like 11 years old. And I was writing Power Rangers fan fiction at the time. had no idea what fan fiction was. I just knew that they were colorful and they transformed and it was awesome. Um, but the five books that I, when I started writing with the goal of seeing my name on a shelf one day uh, was over 10 years ago. It's been about 10, 11 years. And this just happened like not even two full months ago. So it was a journey of perseverance. There were a lot of no's. I stopped counting the no's at 250 because it just, it starts to weigh you down. And each no I decided was going to be one more cobblestone on my path. Because uh, getting no, you, I mean, you, want, you don't want the no's, but you want the no's because that means you're putting your work out there and everybody's going to get no's. That's just how it works. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I'm so glad you didn't listen to that teacher and that you persevered through all those no's because it it really is wonderful what you've created. And I know going forward, you're going to continue to create some amazing and wonderful things. Through this process and through the writing process, what do you find the most challenging? What piece of this process is the most challenging for you? It depends on the book. Um, Each book has its own challenges. For some books, it was setting. Uh, For others, it might have been, you know, character development, make sure that they have their own personal emotional arts. For some books, it might be the dialogue. I would like to say that I think the most, the thing about it overall was coming to terms with figuring out that writing and publishing are two different things. Ah, very true. And publishing is what wears people down because it's a business and like a business, it has its problems. Um, It has its isms, racism, sexism. Um, It has its phobias. It has its issues because again, it's a business in today's day and age. And just like any business anywhere, you have to deal with those things. But I love writing enough that I'm still here, you know, 10 years into it. And that's, kind of one of the top three things that I would tell Elle from 10 years ago is that writing and publishing are two different things. Don't let publishing take away your love of writing. And it hasn't. And so that that's kind of where I am now is I've, I've finally settled into this place where I can differentiate between the two. And when one of them frustrates me, the other one is usually there 
with its sound and its reasoning. When publishing seems unreasonable, I can just go into one of my worlds. When my characters refuse to talk to me for whatever reason, there's something that needs to be handled on the business side. It's numbers, it's tangible, it's a problem that I can solve, you know. Um, so they sort of balance each other out. Thank you for sharing that. I, I think that that is a wonderful way to look at it. And I think that most writers come to that point where they can differentiate the two. You, you mentioned the isms of publishing. And I think one of the things, particularly for me in the field of young adult literature that we have today, is is actually a strengthening of a strong, diverse voice going out into the publishing world, which we haven't had um, in a long time. So how was that for you, bringing your own diverse voice in into the this realm and particularly with this book? It was really important to me uh, because growing up, I loved science fiction and fantasy. That's what I read as an escape, um, not knocking historical or contemporary. Um, just for me, I lived in the real world. I wanted to read things that weren't part of it. Um, or maybe they were, but still make believe like, you know, vampires and werewolves and things like that. And so I read those stories. I was ravenous and I loved them and still do, but I never saw myself on the cover or people from my family or who looked like me. And so Alice seeing that cover for the first time was huge because I, well, now I have two nieces. Um, but at the time when Alice was first starting to gain traction, I had one niece who is turning into a little geek. I love her so much. <laughs> and I didn't want her to have the same sort of drought representation-wise um, should she dive into, well, there's no should. She has me for an auntie, so she's going to dive into books. Um, I, I just I wanted that for her, what I didn't have. And publishing is, it's getting better. Um relatively compared to how it was there's still so much work to do and we have so much further to go than I think a lot of people realized um because lately there was a study and it just was released that showed that publishing is still 98 no 96 percent white um and a lot of people were dismayed they were like I thought it was better and it was like uh it's better comparatively, but like I said, we still have a long way to go, and I'm hoping to do my part um, to help us get there. I'm so grateful for that because I couldn't agree with you more. I, I'm one of those people that have, is dismayed that we haven't made it any further than we have, but I'm grateful for the very teeny, teeny steps we've made and for voices like yours that bring bring this great diversity to to a wide range, particularly science fiction and fantasy and those types of things, because I think particularly there, um, there's been a great dearth of really diverse voices. Oh, and yes. I, I, yeah, it, and it's sad because there's there's little geeks of every type out there, <laughs> right? And they're there not just are. one type, right? I mean, I even remember as a girl myself, just not seeing strong women. You know, we've mm -hmm. kind of overcome that, but we still we still have a long way to go with this diversity. So I'm so grateful that you're that you're adding your voice to to this context as you move forward. 
With your novel, A Blade So Black, I, I think it's a wonderful representation, not only of diversity, but of a wonderful, strong sci-fi kind of fantasy mashup kind of thing. So mm-hmm. why do you why do you pick that genre? What you kind of mentioned earlier about that you're kind of a geeky person, but and that you read that as a child. But are there other things particularly about that genre that kind of draw you as a writer, particularly? Urban fantasy is my first love when it comes to reading and to writing because I was that kid who was always looking for the world between worlds. Um, Like, does this door lead to some underground fairy market? You know, things like that, uh, where our world and these mystical worlds could collide and coexist Um, I was always searching for that sort of mysticism, that magic um, that was in the everyday, the mundane. And if you were special enough or paid close enough attention, you might catch a glimpse of it. So I've always loved that aspect. I love magic right here at home. I love it in the city streets. I love it in skyscrapers. Like, you know, the fact that there might be a den of vampires and they happen to, I don't know, have a Wendy's franchise and we don't know. <laughs> like that's the reason this particular Wendy's decides it wants to stay open till 4am is because it's run by vampires. You know, just ridiculous things like that, that would just make life so much more interesting. It's it, That's always been a love of mine. Like, I love my magic. I love my Harry Potter. I love my Tolkien, but that's about it. I I love it. Well, I'm so glad that you're bringing that love to a new generation of readers and a new way and a new innovation. So as we close up our conversation today, tell us a little bit about what the future holds for you. What's what's coming next? Okay, so um, on my social media, I just announced yesterday that I was able to reveal the title for book two i know i saw that i was so excited (laughs) we gotta have a dream so dark uh comes out next year fall next year and it's going to continue alice's story um cover reveal to come soon um i'm very anxious to both get and to share that cover because uh imprint has done marvelous by me my editor, my marketing team, my design team, they understood how important it was to have Alice front and center and have her with her natural hair and her dark skin. Like they, they just got it and they moved mountains to make sure that it's there and I was happy. Well, I am so excited for that. I read that on social media yesterday and was just so excited. So here's one fan that's looking forward to what's coming next. And I'm really excited to continue Alice's story and and to see what uh, challenges she faces in the next book and hopefully in others to come. Yes. Next one, I'm, it's going to be a lot of fun. We get to go real deep into Wonderland. And Ooh. we're there for a little while. Oh, so. cool. Okay. Well, if, if you have any doubts, know that there is at least one fan sitting here in Utah, very excited for what's coming next. And I know that after this, there'll probably be other fans locally and all around the country who will be clamoring for what's coming out of your pen or computer or however you write in the upcoming <laughs> years. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to sharing Alice's journey even further with everybody. Thank you so much, Al. I appreciate it. 
L.L. McKinney is the author of the book A Blade So Black, and she's an advocate for diversity in the publishing industry. The BYU football season just wrapped up. So what will the mascot Cosmo the Cougar be up to? Cole Wissinger of The World's Awaiting Team spoke with Cynthia Barlow, the author of a picture book all about the BYU mascot's adventures called Cosmo's Campus. I'm always interested to hear about how people got the ideas for their books. Could you take us back and tell the story of where you got this inspiration? I was a student at BYU, and while attending BYU, I would walk through Wilkinson Center every day, and I noticed that there isn't any children memorabilia. And one day while our family was at a a BYU basketball game, the children said, Mom, where's Cosmo? And that's when I was inspired. Um, You know, your mind just goes. And I was thinking, oh, my gosh, Cosmo's campus. And and it's it's somewhat like, you know, I Spy Nephi and Where's Waldo, where he takes you on a tour of his campus. And he's in every illustration. And so um, it's somewhat of a picture book where you're, you're looking for Cosmo. And Cosmo, for those of you not familiar with BYU, is the name of our mascot, the cougar that shows up at football games or pep rallies and so on. He's a pretty visible part of our community. And we have a great community here for BYU. Uh, But who did you write this book for? I believe that any BYU, current BYU student or alumni wouldn't love this book for their children. Because as you're looking through the book, it bring, it's very nostalgia, brings back memories. And so um, the book starts off with introducing Cosmo at the BYU sign and then takes you to the Paleontology Museum, the basketball game, for example, the Bell Tower, the Fine Arts Center, the, the BYU Library, the Joseph Smith Building. And at the end of the book, you um, Cosmo ends his tour while riding in a golf cart and waving goodbye in the sunset towards the oldest building on campus, which is the Carl G. Mazur building. And Carl G. Mazur was the founding father of BYU and had a vision um, and wanted everyone to have the opportunity to learn. So I thought, what a fitting way to end the book by Cosmo paying tribute and honor to Carl G. Mazur. As a mother, um, (laughs) with your own children and, and seeing kids gravitate towards different kinds of picture books, Um, What do you think it is about these visual kind of books? I I remember going to the library Mm -hmm. um, in my elementary school and just picking out the I Spies. Those are the ones that couldn't stay on the shelves. Mm -hmm. What do you think these visual literacies have to help young children? Mm -hmm. Well, Cosmos Campus is beautifully illustrated. The graphics are very colorful. They're large. And the text is also in bold, and it's easy reading it's not, you know, long reading per page. And so I believe that it keeps the reader's interest longer that way. And it has cute, you know, there's cute parts throughout the illustrations, um, like the bell tower has a snow scene in wintertime. The football game, there's different things going on in the background in the crowd. You know, like there's beach balls being thrown and signs and the cheerleaders are being tossed. And in the background, you can see the Y on the mountain. So just throughout the the book, there's just fun things that you can see in the book that bring a smile to your face. Mm -hmm. So I believe it brings that warmth and inviting feeling of, wow, this is a family. And that's part of the passion, that this is a family. These drawings are so beautiful. How did you come in contact with your illustrator? Well, I just started asking around. Um, I believe the more that you talk about your passion and what what your vision or what you're seeking, that people come into your life 
that are helped there to help you with your vision. And I met an illustrator and told him about my idea, and he did an eight and a half by eleven acrylic, and it it was just beautiful. I love the colors; they're so vibrant, and the texture that he presents in the book with his acrylics, and and so yeah, it just worked out really well that way. That's good, but there must have been some challenges that came with the territory as well. Getting a first book off of the ground, could you talk a little bit about some of those? And then knowing about those challenges, where do you go from here? When the idea came into my head um, of, about the book, I knew that I needed to write a business plan in order to get my license with Collegiate Licensing Company, get the ISBN number. You know, there's a lot of different things in in bringing your book to light to um, accomplish that vision that you have. And and so I just took one step at a time. But I do have other ideas. My second book idea, which I'm really excited about, is too, where the, it's just not Cosmo on campus. He explores the world. Mm-hmm. Ah, and mm-hmm. that goes right along with the, the slogan here at BYU is to enter... Yeah. Enter to learn, go forth to serve. Yeah, and which he's going to go mm-hmm. forth out to everywhere and exactly and help the world learn. Yeah, That's wonderful. exactly. Here on Worlds Awaiting, our entire focus is on children's literacy and helping children to reach their full potential. All the literacies they develop prepare them to enter the world and embrace everything they find there, including the social, cultural, economic, and political. Today, we have educator Amy Miner in studio with us. Welcome, Amy. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. You know, one of the things that we need to think about, especially here in the United States, is when we talk about literacy, it's not just about job skills or being a contributor to the world. It's a very fundamental thing that we need for our democracy to work. Literacy is so much a part of our democratic process. So what what issues do you think parents need to be aware of that, that help them understand how literacy and democratic participation coincide? It's a good question. I think fundamental to democratic literacies is literacy in general, literacy and numeracy. We have to prepare our kids with the fundamental skills so that they can engage in these kinds of conversations. At the heart of democracy is engaging in deliberation. And so associated with those kind of deliberations are being able to read and understand issues, being able to have some contextual background so they know where to put that in terms of history, in terms of current events. Deliberations are founded on the idea that that's where we bring issues to public or issues to a conversation, and that's where we deliberate with the intent of coming up with a solution to a problem. So inherent in that are skills of being able to articulate an argument, to be able to listen, to be able to respond politely and with tolerance. Uh, There are skills associated with being able to debate and to take on a different perspective other than your own. So a lot of that is teaching them how, but then giving them lots of opportunities to be comfortable with it. Yeah. And I think one of the interesting things with all of this is sometimes we think of literacies as a very solitary practice, right? Reading a book or writing something that can be very solitary. But when we think about these democratic literacies, discussions and 
you know, debate and all of these things you've been mentioning, it very much is a social construct. And that's what so much about this kind of democratic literacy is, is providing our kids with this social construct in order to engage with these literacies at a very unique level. Yeah. And I think it's important that those happen in public spaces because one of the foundations of democracy is public space. You can look at some of the work of Parker Palmer, John Goodlad, John Dewey. You can go, you can look at not only the education theorists, but also the democratic theorists. And all of those are building on this concept that in public spaces, Things can happen that can't happen in private. That's why I think schools have to pick up some of the stewardship for this literacy training, whether that's public schools or private schools or charter schools. It doesn't matter. But whenever we can get kids into spaces to interact with people who are different than themselves, then that becomes an important, authentic um, practice in democracy. I had my students doing a lot of readings to understand what's the history of democracy. What did it look like in Greece? What did it look like in Rome? What does it look like in South Africa? What does it look like in the United States? So that they understand this is a bigger, broader concept than a form of government, which a lot of them think it is. But then they start actually seeing how these principles overlay into different communities, different societies. And then they're able to engage in not only the skills but the actual language and vocabulary associated with democratic literacies. Well, and that too, especially looking at it from all the different aspects, brings in that universality that we're talking about and and ways we communicate across cultures and across people. And that is a fundamental literacy as well, is Mm -hmm. how do we communicate with people that aren't like us or who might not communicate in the exact same way we do? And that's a fundamental part of being able to participate in the democracy is that kind of cross-communication between similarities as well as differences. Right. And at the heart of it for me is a definition around being a global citizen. Mm, This is so much bigger than being a local citizen. And in the schools, we, we have a curriculum scope and sequence that starts with, you know, teaching children how to behave in their local neighborhoods and their local communities. But very quickly by about age 12, we're really trying to teach kids how to interact as global citizens. And with technology and with the way that society's set up, if we're not engaging in some of those technology-based literacies, the new literacies, um, and in, and teaching our children how to use social media and technology and ways to communicate with each other, we're also not providing them with the skills that they need. And so I think that as not only are we providing them with the language, the vocabulary, the history, the culture – We're also providing them with the motivation, the commitment to engage with each other. Whenever we see students who are recycling, who have um, a commitment to the environment, a commitment to people who who live across the planet, we're, we're teaching them how to become global citizens. And I actually think our children today are much more prone to becoming global citizens than maybe my generation or even a generation before me. Because in their minds, they've been interacting globally since they were very young children, you know, where maybe the scope and sequence of done in 1916 would have been, oh, these kids don't have that exposure until they're in college. So, yeah, I think creating those spaces are really important for kids. Yeah, and I think especially the 
the sense of geography that you were talking about before is really important to this as well, because really those barriers have been broken down. There's there's fewer, even though they still exist, there's fewer of those geographic barriers that prevent us from, from getting in touch with each other and seeing what other people are doing. So being able to see that diversity up close and up front and, and being able to engage with it at a very personal level and not just seeing it far away. And I think one of the things I loved about what you said, when you talk about boundaries or borders. Part of what this means in becoming a global citizen is a lot of those borderlands are consistently changing. Mm. And so geography, what we used to understand as geography is map study and skills, things like that, are no longer the skills we're teaching with geography. We're really talking about how do borders and boundaries change, even in our own local communities, when we're thinking about different identities, different cultures, different backgrounds. And that's very much a democratic literacy, because as we start seeing how those boundaries change, then we see how our role, how power changes, how our influence and how our ability to make a difference changes. Yeah. And I think that really shows us how we fit in the world in a very different way. So not only does it show us a more sense of this global community, but it also shows us a very unique sense of our individual role in the community and how we fit in and and what we can do as individuals to make a difference. And if we don't do that, we have a generation who becomes very apathetic and who believes that democracy doesn't apply to them, who believes that this community is just a place where I live. And we have to find a space where we create not only the knowledge, but the skills and the dispositions for the future of our democracy. Right now, we're dealing with a, a generation that doesn't believe that it matters. And so we have, we have, as stewards in education and as parents and as community members, an obligation to really prepare them so that not only can they interact, but that they will choose yeah. To make a difference in those places. Yeah, and that's a big part of it. It's that choice. It's not just a can I, it's a will I make that choice to participate. And and that's one of the things that developing these literacies from a very early age will help them be ready to participate. We can't wait until, you know, they get to voting age. We have to we have to start early. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Suddenly care about that. I think that there's a lot of opportunities, even with really young children, there's a a theoretical mind shift in terms of how we view citizens. And mm. five to 10 years ago, we always thought of them as people who were 18 and older. Now there's a shift globally, internationally, when you think about the human rights of the child, a lot of those kinds of documents and approaches to protection and rights and responsibilities are taking the shift to thinking about children as citizens now. How do we protect them? How to prepare them? How do we engage them in that work? That That's a big shift. Mm, yeah. And as we start making that shift, then it changes what we teach and how we teach and how we engage them. And I think you can see that shift very clearly even in children's media. I think about oh, yeah. I think about some of the traditional children's television shows or traditional kind of children's media conglomerates. What they're really trying to do is is get people to be more activists and you you see good characters even you know Dora the Explorer and stuff. They're really trying to develop this kind of basic Um, sense of what it is to be in this global environment. And I think that's a theme that's been around for a while. You know, if you go back and look at Wizard of Oz, political overtones and undertones. But I think that the literature that our kids are exposed to today and that they engage in, they not only understand those themes, but they understand them as being political themes for them to engage in. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, it's it's, it's an amazing new world that we're yes, engaged in. Thank you so much Amy for your time today. You're welcome. Thank you.
Amy Miner is an educator that works for a local school district. Now, before we leave you, I'm going to step around the librarian's table with librarians from around Utah to talk about children, books, and life at the library. Today is the final part of my series with Emily and Taylor from the Harold B. Lee Library on book editing. This time, we focus on setting. We're having our chat today with Taylor and Emily, and let's continue and talk a little bit about setting. So setting to me is pretty important because I think that it is like the packaging. It's like the cover that, you know, all the the characters and the plot. But the cool, the interesting thing to me about setting is that setting is very genre specific. And I don't think that that's true of other elements of literature. Like, you know, you can have the same kind of characters, the same kind of plots and that type of stuff in in other things, but setting is very distinct with that. So particularly when we talk about fantasy, there's some things that are really important. So what do you think about that? How do you think that setting is so unique to the genre? So I think some people read books specifically for the setting, and I feel like that's where they get the niche of fantasy book lovers. My husband and my sister's husband, very they love world building. They read books to read about world building. Like, I know, like yeah. on, as soon as you say that, like, oh, they're Brandon Sanderson fans, right? Yeah. Like, he yeah. is like, yeah. and well, I think he'll even go as far as to create his own religions mm-hmm. and like things if you've ever yeah. read Mistborn or he, he really incorporates everything about a world, not mm-hmm. just what you would think about the iconic setting. Are there trees? Like, is it winter? Is it like, yeah, yeah. I think. Um, one thing that he really does well is he establishes the rules mm. of the world. Yes. Um, because if it's not done well, the world building, then there's like elements missing. Like you don't yeah. know why this is happening or if this can happen, stuff like that. So it's that's, potholes. that's yeah. what I yeah. really enjoy about him is he um, he makes it clear, like like you said, like he um, built this religion and like all of these things are clear, like this can happen and this can't everything is an understanding why the yes. character's motives yeah. are all f- fulfilled by the setting mm-hmm. the setting affects characters and i think if you just you need to have that in order to have a realistic book mm-hmm. if the setting i know my setting affects me like if i <laughs> yeah haven't like if i'm in a place that i don't feel comfortable i'm not yeah. comfortable if i'm like if something happens around me i react and i think that's an important part of plot to make it realistic mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people don't realize with fantasy, particularly that kind of social construct to the setting, right, that they have to build, right? Because like you say, they have to build the religion. They have to build, you know, how people interact with each other and all that kind of stuff, which is, I think, one of the reasons that makes it different from like realistic fiction or historical fiction, because you have to kind of stick Mm -hmm. to the already existing social constructs. But with fantasy, you can like throw all of that Mm -hmm. out of the world and you can make your own religion. You can make your own, you know conventions to greet people right you know you know how do how do people interact and you know the social classes and all that kind of stuff and i can attest that the setting makes or breaks a book not just with like fantasy but that people have different reasons for why they want to read and one of one of which can go they want to go to a different place they want to go where those they want to be a part of that making mm-hmm. up process of where what are their kinds of greetings and things. You can complete everything's your own. And one of my favorite all-time series is partly because of the setting, which is um, Tamara Pierce. 
her books yes. with the uh, it starts with Alana and then the wild ma- magic and then Kelladry and then you go to her daughter and then you go way back in time and you go to George's great grandmother and I love it. I eat it all up. I'll reread those all the series. <laughs> And sorry for those who don't know, a lot of different series that all have like basically four books or one of them has two books, but they have different characters and different um, plots, but but the setting is the same. It's all in the same world. So you get a, and there's almost like little Easter eggs in that where you're like, I know that place or everything makes sense and it's familiar and you can go start off running because you already know what the setting is. You understand. You almost feel like you're inside of a little secret or something. Yeah. I don't know. It's- well, I, I think that that's true, too, of a lot of books that we love, you know, when the settings are similar, you know, because, you know, we're, Taylor and I, we're totally Jane Austen oh, fans, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Totally. Okay, you know? I like Jane Austen. Yeah, no, no, you do, too. But Taylor and I love her more than you do, Emily. <laughs> okay. so, so, you know, no. But, you know, one of the things I love is when I read YA books that are similar, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's been a, uh, an author um, that has been writing similarly too, that I'm just like because I'm and it's not because the characters are familiar or the the plot is familiar. It's because the setting is familiar mm-hmm. that I love these books, right? And just you know revisiting that kind of time period, revisiting that kind of sense, is very comforting. There, there's mm-hmm. something comforting yeah. about yes, that. That's, I think that's about, the point I was trying to yeah, make. Yeah, revisiting that place or that time in a book that we just feel like is really. It's really something mm-hmm. that we that we enjoy or someplace we feel comfortable, right? It's like, you know, we've just cleaned up our house and it's all clean and fabulous and we're ready to just enjoy what's going on yeah. and all of that. So I think that that helps it be very comforting and basic, yeah. I think one thing that's important um, is that there has to be a reason that this is the mm-hmm. setting you chose. Um, I read this book recently that was it was set in Italy and I think – I just felt like there was no reason for it to be there. I felt like the only reason it was set in Italy was so that you could say it was set in Italy, you know, because this yeah. is like a cool. It may be that the, the author Italian needed to write off their thing, trip you know? to Italy. To- yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just there was no reason for it to be there. And I think setting should be um, one of the important aspects in your book that there should be a reason why it's there so but that's tricky with realistic fiction right yeah because it could be it really could be said anywhere right yeah that's true so i mean how was that the reason it was set there do you think it was just because it could be anywhere it just, it just it just wasn't it, a good it, book it so, just, yeah, no, yeah. so a book that we read that we really like calvin yeah. Was set Ooh, yes. in the by middle Martin of Levitt. by Martin Levitt was in the middle of one of the I I don't remember what Great Lake it was, but it was a frozen Great Lake that they were mm-hmm. walking across. So their setting was literally nothing. Just ice. And this is like <laughs> yeah. this is a really realistic fiction and where you're saying maybe it doesn't yeah. matter where it is, but I think it makes it it creates she did something with the nothing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? That author should have been should have done something with Italy. Yeah. Even though yeah. That, that makes it, a good sense. Yeah. yeah. It should be yeah. like an integral part. And it just felt like Italy was just, they were just there. They were just there. <laughs> well, and I think there's a lot of books too, that the setting actually becomes a character, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cause in like Calvin, to me, that is how I would describe it. Right. Yeah. Not necessarily that that didn't, it was just a nothing setting, but the setting was actually a character. And I think man versus nature conflicts, 
you know, like Gary Paulson's Hatchet, mm-hmm. the the outdoors, the the environment that you're is in a all, is is a totally, becomes love, a character, right? That. So I, th- yeah. I think that's an interesting kind of twist that some authors put on it, where the setting becomes more than a setting and actually becomes a character in in the context of the book. And I think everybody should almost take that as a challenge, almost. Oh like, yeah, yeah. What what is your setting? Is mm-hmm. it going to be nothing, or are you yeah. going to? Why did you make that choice? Part yeah. of your story. Yeah. And I think realistic fiction. I know that you said I think that's hard, but I even think about what if it was in the Bronx? What if it was mm, in yeah. like your setting? is, I don't know, me, and I already mentioned this, me as myself, I feel like my setting affects every decision I make. Where I am, am I in a a professional place? Am I at work? Am I at home? Am I at the gym? I don't know. I mean, I think it goes deeper than that. I think I was, you know, making it too shallow because it really is, you know, if if it was set in New York, there would be a different set of conventions than if it was set in Provo, Utah, right? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, (laughs) there would be a different set of norms and all that kind of stuff. And you have to bring that along to impact mm-hmm. to impact the book that you're doing because in the end that's what makes it holistic and wonderful and mm-hmm. fabulous along those lines very interesting stuff ladies thank you so much for for breaking down some thoughts about setting with us today thank you thank you i'd like to thank emily and taylor for talking with me around the librarian's table We've had a very insightful show today. First, we talked with University Communications Director Joe Hadfield about his role as a dad. Then we talked with author Ella McKinney about her writing journey. Our last guest was Amy Miner, sharing about how important literacy is for democracy. If you missed any of today's show, or if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on the BYU Radio app or byuradio.org, as well as on most podcast apps and websites. If you want to know more about what we do here on Worlds Awaiting, feel free to follow our Instagram at Worlds Awaiting. This has been a production of BYU Radio. Our producer is Cole Wissinger. Our student production assistant is Natalie Anderson. And our technical advisor is Braden Flint. I'm Rachel Wadham, looking forward to the worlds that are waiting for us next week. Thank you for exploring with us.